This is the Ancazine Brief with Peter Hofflin and Sonia Portillo. In this episode of the Ancazine Brief, we talk with Dr. Thomas Yankilov, a computational biomedical engineer who came to the University of Texas at Austin from Vanderbilt University. He was the University of Texas' first faculty member to hold positions in both the engineering and medical schools. Dr. Yankilov's clinical research focuses on improving patient care by employing advanced imaging methods for the early identification, assessment, and prediction of tumors and their response to therapy. He has developed successful tumor forecasting methods by combining imaging technologies with patient-specific data to build predictive, multi-scale biophysical models of tumor growth. His research emphasizes the importance of offering personalized therapies to cancer patients. Dr. Jan Kulov is a fellow of the American Institute of Medical and Biological Engineers, and he has served on the editorial boards of multiple scientific publications. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The overall goal of Dr. Thomas Yankelov's clinical research is to improve patient care by employing advanced imaging methods for the early identification, assessment, and prediction of tumors' response to therapy. He develops tumor forecasting methods by integrating advanced imaging technologies with patient-specific data to build predictive, multi-scale biophysical models of tumor growth with the purpose of optimizing therapies for the individual cancer patient. In our interview with Dr. Thomas Yankelov, we'll talk about computational oncology, what this is, and how it fits in cancer treatment. We also talk about oncology models, what these models are trying to tell us, and how they are developed and how using these cancer models leads to a different way of looking at cancer. Dr. Yankelov, welcome to the Oncazine Brief. Pleasure to have you here. Hello. Nice to meet you. At the Center for Computational Oncology, which is part of the broader Institute for Computational Engineering and Sciences, you and your colleagues are attempting to develop computer models for cancer growth. First off, Dr. Yankelov, what is computational oncology and how does it fit in when it comes to cancer treatments? Sure. I think um, uh, different people will define it different ways, but I think generally people refer to computational oncology as the use of applied mathematics and statistics to address important problems in in oncology. So questions related to diagnosis, prognosis, um, uh, drug selection, optimization of the delivery of the drug, and then prognosis. So those sorts of main questions and try to attack them from a more mathematical point of view. Okay, so what exactly are these oncology models trying to show, and how are they developed? Right, so um, I'm going to focus now more to the stuff that we do, because there's computational oncology has sort of um, uh, two wings to it, if you were two, two, uh, two sides to it. One is the informatics and big data approach um, uh, that requires very large amounts of data to train statistical models to make a prediction. That's one approach. Another approach is to try to build uh, mechanism-based uh, systems of equations that describe how things uh, evolve in space and in time. And the stuff that our lab does is exclusively the, the latter of those two. That is, we try to build mechanism-based models that are based on things that are called differential equations to try to um, populate them with patient-specific um, uh, information to make a prediction going forward. So when we build a model, we try to take into account 
uh, things that are important about the specific disease that's under investigation and the types of therapies that that type of patient might receive. And we write these things down on a whiteboard, and then we start writing equations that incorporate these um, important parameters and how they're related to each other and how they will evolve in space and time. So the idea is that you develop a list of important parameters, you develop a model, uh, a mathematical model that talks about how these things are related to each other, then you take patient-specific information to populate those parameters in the model, and then you run the model forward in time to see, to make a prediction about how the, the tumor will respond or not respond um, uh, to therapy. The end goal would be able to say you have a system of equations that nicely describes the, the spatial and temporal development of a tumor, and in these equations are things related to treatment. So you could go in on the computer and try lots of different treatments on the computer, and then at the end of the day have a prediction for what the best therapeutic option would be for that individual patient. That's that's the holy grail, if you will. That's that's where the field is trying to get to, um, uh, uh, and. You know that's a that's a long way off, but you know different groups have made different inroads into into getting there. Um, does that make sense? I see. Yeah. So how is this different from the way that cancer is looked at now? Right. So it's it's pretty different because um, most of the progress that we've had in our battle against cancer has come from uh, you know molecular biology, biochemistry, these types of disciplines that people might think of uh, first when they think about the, the war on cancer. Um, it's only been in maybe the last 10, 10 to 12 years where people have really started to use the the, um, uh, the tools of mathematics to try to uh, rigorously model the disease progression and how it responds to therapy. And it's a very difficult process to try to, to marry these models with uh, data that you can get um, from a patient or from an experimental system. So most of the progress we've had against cancer has um, uh, been from the biological sciences. And now, more recently, in the last decade or so, people have tried to use the tools of mathematics um, uh, to, uh, to attack the disease. Are there some specific examples that we might know of, of some models that are currently being used in oncology now? Well, that's, um, uh, that's a fantastic question. And uh, the, the short answer is the, there are not. There, um, uh, this is a very new field. Um, and there, the people are just starting to use uh, these methods in clinical trials. There's been a lot of stuff that's been done in the in the laboratory setting and in the experimental preclinical setting, if you will. Um, and it's only been uh, good grief in the last couple of years where people have started to use these techniques in clinical trials. There's a there's a, a handful of clinical trials going. I can think of two right now, two uh, clinical trials that are using um, mathematical methods that actually make a prediction about how you should treat a certain um, um, uh, group of patients, and those studies are going on now to see if these mathematical predictions are superior to what's done in the standard of care setting. So it's a very, very new. Um, it's a very new field, um, but it's it, uh, it's very difficult to point to a clear success story at this time. Mm -hmm. So when when you look at the mathematical models uh, of tumor growth, um, the, my understanding is that there have been a number of different uh, um, proposals being made uh, for for these different proposals to make this happen. So how do you determine? Which of those models is more accurate? Um, one of the things that I've heard people talking about is the Occam's plausibility algorithm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So it's a fantastic point. People have written down equations for how tumors grow for you know the better part of a century. It's lived almost exclusively in the mathematical literature. There's been 
I think it's widely agreed upon. I don't think I'm saying anything um, too obnoxious. I think it's widely agreed upon that for the first 90 or so years, there was very little interaction between mathematical modelers and um, experimental uh, biologists or experimental scientists. And so the, the, the field sort of grew up on its own. Mathematical modeling of cancer sort of grew up on its own. And there wasn't a whole lot of interplay with, with data. So it was hard to know if which model worked the best. Um, so now there are, you know, there are dozens, hundreds of models out there that people are trying to write down to describe how, um, um, how a tumor might grow and respond to therapy. And there's a reason for that. There, the reason for that is that we don't have, um, these models are not built from first principles of, of, of physics. So we don't have the F equals MA of, of, of cancer. We don't have the first principles of cancer. So we're left with phenomenological models. Uh, that is models that sort of describe the phenomena that you see, but you are, but are extraordinarily difficult to derive from first principles. If you can derive a model from first principles, then you, then there are not nearly as many models to choose from because everybody agrees on what these principles are and why they're important. And they um, have certain assumptions behind them. And so you get a group of people together and they're going to land on similar models in some vague sense. But if you, um, uh, if you're left with trying to model the phenomena that you observe without being able to appeal to first principles, different groups of people will go about that differently. And so you'll have a whole suite of models. So then your question is, how do you, how do you pick the one that's most appropriate? And there are different statistical techniques that you can use. To, that, um, uh, so you would, have, you would have your data and you would have your suite of models and you would try to fit the data with your suite of models. And then there are statistical measures that tell you how good your model is at fitting the data. Okay, let's uh, take a short break here and then we talk some more. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Thomas Yankilov, a computational biomedical engineer who came to the University of Texas at Austin from Vanderbilt University. We'll be right back. This is the Youngers in Brief. This is the Youngers in Brief. And if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Thomas Yankilov, a computational biomedical engineer who came to the University of Texas at Austin from Vanderbilt University. He and his team have developed successful tumor forecasting methods by combining imaging technologies with patient-specific data to build predictive, multi-scale biophysical models of tumor growth. Before the break, uh, Dr. Yankilov, we were talking a little bit about models and how they may actually benefit um, patients or how they actually are being developed. Now, you and your collaborators from the University of Texas um, and, technical, and also the Technical University of, in Munich, you've shown that you can predict brain tumor or gliomas uh, responses to X-ray radiation therapy with a greater accuracy than previous models have been able to do that. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. So first, I would, I, I, um, uh, I, we should temper the excitement. Those predictions were made in, um, uh, in, uh, in preclinical models of glioma. So these were done, and those studies were done in, in rats that had um, uh, brain tumors implanted in them. So there, it was not patients. Um, uh, we're currently, uh, you know, trying to execute the clinical trials that, that where we try to mimic what we saw in the preclinical setting. But that uh, we need to be clear that that was done in, um, uh, in rat studies and not in human studies. So. Um, uh, so there's that, right? Um, uh, so uh, what we try to do, or and what other groups are trying to do too, there's a handful of groups around the country that are trying to do this, is we try to build what we call mechanism-based models that take into account things that you can measure in three dimensions and at multiple time points um, um, 
in in the in this case in the rat brain tumor. Um, so we measure things that that relate to blood flow, vessel perfusion, vessel permeability, cellularity, proliferation. These types of things that we know um, uh, from experimental data are uh, are important to how a tumor grows or responds to therapy. And so we take those parameters and we build them into um, a, a sets of what are called coupled partial differential equations that then can tell you how the tumor, the, the number of tumor cells will proliferate or how they'll migrate, how they'll move around, how they'll respond to therapy. Um, and we build those models and then we populate them with uh, with early time point data. So we use early time point data. That means measurements of things like blood flow and cellularity and proliferation and tumor size at early time points. We use those to calibrate the models, meaning we use those early time points to uh, fix the parameters that are in the model. And then once they're fixed, we make a prediction of how the tumor is going to evolve forward in time. And, um, and so we make these predictions, how they goes forward in time, and then we compare it to what actually happened in this case in the, um, um, in the animals. And uh, we, we had fairly nice predictions for the tumor volume at the end of the experiment. Um, so that's 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 what we tried to do there. When you talk about the accuracy, my understanding is that this is really accurate. Um, so how actually is it possible to reach that accuracy in comparison to, for example, other things that are out there? And um, what have other models maybe been lacking in that respect? Well, there's been very few models out there that actually try to predict forward in time the spatial extent, um, the size of the tumor. What we've done, what we do clinically, and what we do um, uh, in most studies is you assess response. Um, there are various techniques that radiologists and oncologists use to assess response, um, but they were never designed, and everybody knows this, they, they were never designed to do prediction. We look at, um, uh, right now clinically, we look at the changes in tumor size. Um, uh, there's this thing called the RECIST criteria, R-E-C-I-S-T, Response Evaluation Criteria in Solid Tumors. And the RECIST criteria is in place in every solid tumor clinical trial um, study uh, in the country. And what happens is you measure this tumor size at, at baseline before therapy and at the conclusion of therapy and sometimes at a few time points in between. And you measure basically the longest dimension of the tumor and you look at changes in size. And if it goes, it gets binned, those changes in size gets binned into one of four categories, either complete response, partial response, stable disease, or progressive disease. And that's all looking at assessment of response. It was never meant to do prediction. So, um, so there are not a whole lot of methods out there for predicting in the future um, uh, uh, whether or not a tumor will, will respond or not. Um, we do the absolute best we can to pick the therapy at the beginning, and then we sort of assess response at various time points. But there's not really a whole lot out there on how we can do prediction of, of uh, predicting the spatial and temporal evolution of, of a tumor. Okay. So I can only imagine that if you look at uh, the amount of computer power uh, that you may need, you probably are looking at large computers uh, to implement your mathematical me methodology. Um, so how you are working with my with uh, the Texas Advanced Computer or Computing Center? Um, how do com uh, supercomputers or those large computers actually enable you to? Um, work faster or to find a problem or solve a problem that uh, you may otherwise not be able to kind of um, uh, address? 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, the types of things that, that our team and that other teams around the country do, we couldn't, we simply could not have done them, you know, 15 years ago because we didn't have the computing power because the, the model equations are quite large. The uh, number of free parameters can be large. The, the data sets that we're using can also be large. And so this takes an, um, uh, very fast processors with lots of memory to be able to uh, calibrate our models to the to the data. So we are very lucky in that we have access to this uh, Texas Advanced Computing Center. They call it TAC. And it's actually a national resource. Anybody in the country can apply to use the facilities out there. And so we always sort of joke to ourselves that these computers make us or help us to make our mistakes faster. So things that, you know, maybe a few years ago might have taken weeks to figure out we did it wrong. Now we can figure out in a few hours um, uh, that we did it wrong and then we can loop back around and, and try to improve it for, for the next run. So um, uh, access to high performance computing and doing uh, parallel processing, these things are sort of necessities to, to, to being able to do uh, computational oncology. All right, now let's, lift, let's uh, shift gears a bit, Dr. Yankalog. Can you tell us about how mathematical models can be significant in a clinical setting, such as helping patients or doctors? Sure. Let me. Um, uh, I. That's a fantastic question, and I will certainly get to it. I think um, uh, one way to explain it is. Um, well, let me just start talking. So, um, one way that I do like to explain it is. Um, so, in 1961, when President Kennedy said that we were going to send someone to the moon and bring them back safely, um, before the end of the decade. This was um, uh, largely an engineering problem because Newton, Isaac Newton had given us the equations of motion in 1687. So, you know, we had been working with these equations of motion for 274 years and putting a um, uh, and building rockets to go to the moon was perhaps our greatest engineering um, a feat as a as a as a species, but we had the equations behind it. We had f equals m a. We understood orbital mechanics. We understood um, uh, uh, we understood mechanics, so we could do these things. So that is contrasted in 1971 when President Nixon declared the war on cancer and actually used language similar to um, uh, uh, or in his language in his announcement, he said it's time for this country to now use the resources that we had for uh, going to the moon and for splitting the atom to to attack this dreaded disease. But in 1971, we didn't have the F equals MA of cancer. We still don't have the F equals MA of cancer. So what this means is we're left with trial and error. If you don't have a mathematical theory for something, you're left with trial and error. So we're trying very hard to come up with um, a, a mathematical theory that says, all right, the patient-specific information is X, Y, and Z, and here's our model that when we populate it with X, Y, and Z, we can make a patient-specific prediction. So the end goal would be able to come up with a system of equations that describes for a particular type of cancer, um, uh, how this patient will respond to a battery uh, of therapies. We can go on the computer and try, um, you know, in silico on the computer, dozens, maybe hundreds of different therape therapeutic combinations, both in selecting drugs and then when to give those drugs. So, so, uh, so optimizing both the selection and delivery of those drugs, and then have the computer run all these simulations on our, based on our models and come up with the scenario that has the best likelihood for for tumor control for the longest amount of time. So that 
might sound all very Star Trek-y or out in the future, but that's the goal. And so how that would impact the clinic is the physician is no longer left with their experience and expertise or that of their colleagues. It's now There's now a mathematical theory behind it that they can combine with their experience and expertise to select the optimal therapy. They're no longer left with trial and error. We can run clinical trials on the individual patient on the computer given their patient-specific information. Um, and, and if we had that type of capability, then it's, I think it's hard to overstate the effect that it could have um, uh, clinically. Our guest is Dr. Thomas Yankelov, a computational biomedical engineer at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Yankelov has developed successful tumor forecasting methods by combining imaging technologies with patient-specific data to build predictive, multi-scale, biophysical models of tumor growth. After a break, we'll talk more about predictive models in oncology. We'll be right back. I'm Sonia Portillo, here with Peter Hoffland, and this is the Oncozine Brief. And welcome back. This is the Oncozine Brief. I'm Sony Portillo, back with Dr. Thomas Yankelov, a computational biomedical engineer at the University of Texas at Austin. Now, Dr. Yankelov, looking at the entire field of cancer research, one of the buzzwords we've heard so many times over the last few years is that of personalized therapy with the goal to individualize patient treatment. How does what you and your team are doing help this process move forward? Right. So I'm certainly biased in this point of view, but um, I think that the whole idea of building mathematical models that can take the, in, the data from the individual patient and put that into a system of equations to make a prediction about the individual patient is sort of the height of a patient-specific um, uh, therapy or precision medicine or personalized therapy. Because we, the idea is that you have a rigorous mathematical theory that's going to predict the spatial and temporal evolution of the individual patient's tumor. And then you can take that model system with their patient-specific individual, of the individual patient, and um, put that on the computer and try a battery of therapies to try to optimize therapy for that individual patient. So I, I think that um, uh, mathematical modeling uh, or computational oncology, if you will, is, um, um, is, is required to do really individualized therapies. Because again, without a mathematical theory, we're sort of left with trial and error. And with the individual patient, you don't get many trials. So being able to do this all on the computer for the individual patient based on their specific information is sort of the height of personalized medicine. But I'm very biased in that point of view. I see. So what significant advances have been made in the areas of mathematical models for cancer growth and what still needs to be done? How do you see it grow in the future? Right. The the it's a it's a very new field. The successes that have happened have been um, in small patient populations um, and, and very uh, very controlled settings. So it's it's not ready for quote uh, prime time end quote. Um, the 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 biggest uh, there's there's two very large hurdles. One is on the experimental side, and one is on the more theoretical side. On the experimental side, the types of data that we typically acquire on patients. Um, in the routine standard of care setting are not typically of sufficient quality um, uh, and, and, um, uh, and of a sufficient quantitative nature 
to, to populate these mechanism-based predictive models. So we have to get better and smarter about the types of data that we acquire. And of course, you know, at the end of the day, you're treating people, and people don't like to be poked and prodded uh, you know, on odd infinitum. So we have to come up with a small, reasonable set of quantitative measures that we can make in the individual patient in the routine standard of care setting. So that's on the experimental side. We need to figure out what those measurements are. And then on the theoretical side, like I was chatting, like we were chatting about earlier, we don't have the F equals MA of cancer. We have um, uh, these phenomenological models that are sort of, it's not like they're handed down on stone tablets. We sort of make them up uh, using the, our, our best assessments of what's important um, about cancer and what the, you know, the cancer biologists have told us um, from their decades of phenomenal work. So we have to come up with, um, if we don't come up with the, um, the, uh, the principles of cancer, at least things that are very close to the first principles of cancer that let us build these um, uh, mathematical models that are uh, tightly in tune with what we know is important about the disease. And once we can do that, then we can link it with the, um, um, the proper data types I was referring to earlier. And that, that will make a huge step forward. So just in summary, the two big areas are coming up with a reasonable set of, uh, of quantitative measurements we can make on, in the routine standard of care setting on, on, you know, on every patient that's on the experimental or measurement side, and then coming up with models that really encapsulate the key components of a particular disease type. Those are the two um, uh, the two big areas that I think are, 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 I think most people would probably say those are two of the big areas we need to make progress on. So you're primarily looking at computer modeling and how this helps uh, patients and how you can individualize the patient's treatment. Um, in, the, in this program, we have uh, been talking with different people about individualized medicine or personalized medicine. Uh, is it correct to understand that um, what you do is really looking at, at, at the measurements from one particular patient, and that is different per patient, uh, and then work with um, the treatment for that particular patient? Yes, I think that's a that's a that's a very accurate thing to say. I think that. Um, uh, and this is a this is a a place where there's a bit of a dichotomy or just a different philosophy or a different approach between the big data and um, uh, um, uh, the deep learning approaches of, of 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 big data and machine learning and these types of things. That's one part of the of the attack. And the other part is these mechanism based models of uh, that 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 our team works on. And the idea is that cancer is so heterogeneous, not just and of course, it's not just one disease, depending on how you count it. It's well over 100 different diseases because people just don't get breast cancer and they just don't within breast cancer. There are, you know, there's depending on how you how you um, subdivide it. There's, you know, there's three major uh, uh, cell surface receptors that are expressed in breast cancer. And depending on how they're expressed, you lead to these further subtypes. And so it's not just someone who has breast cancer. It's not just someone who has triple negative breast cancer. It's some subtype of a subtype. And to have a, um, a machine learning approach that lets you train for the individual patient, you have to have a very large data set that um, mimics the things that are in that very specific sub-subtype. And so we have this sort of naive view that or it's not just our idea. Lots of people kind of think about this as, you know, every person is, a, is, is sort of a snowflake, right? So it's very difficult to tell something about the snowflake from the, from the avalanche. So we have to build... We have to build models that are general that can describe this particular disease subtype, but then we have to populate it with patient-specific information from that individual snowflake. 
Um, so those are uh, the sort of two ways of, of approaching this problem. And I don't know if I answered your question, but I tried to. <laughs> I think I think you did. I mean, but I mean, there's uh, with every answer there is another question because uh, when you look at the individualized patient and you look at your models, um, I can only imagine that there will be a major uh, disruption of, for example, how the pharmaceutical industry is working. In the past, uh, we've seen uh, drugs being developed uh, for a large group of people. Uh, different diseases, but they may always have received the same kind of drugs, um, creating the so-called blockbuster uh, uh, drugs that are out there. Um, in in with working with your models and working with your approach to patient care and the treatment of cancer, um, that is going to change. Um, and what are you expecting will be the impact of that? Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I should have brought that up myself. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, uh, the, the first anti-cancer therapies, of course, were broad-spectrum chemotherapies, drugs that were designed to kill any cells that were rapidly proliferating. And that's why there's all those horrible side effects that you read about and perhaps see about or unfortunately experience when, um, um, when these therapies are given. Um, so uh, uh, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, the first targeted therapies came on board. You know, Gleevec and Herceptin were the first two big blockbusters that were on the front of things like Time Magazine and, and Newsweek. I think one of those was on the front. I, I might have the details wrong, but those were the first two big targeted therapies that were designed to hit um, a specific uh, cell surface receptors, particular cell types and not broad spectrum um, uh, diseases. So when you compound the specificity of the drugs, that um, are that are being developed now with the specificity of the individual therapy coming up with a appropriate training set is getting harder and harder because the patients are very different and the therapies are so targeted so we have this again this is a totally biased view and not everybody will agree with what i'm saying but we have this point of view that we we the the big data approach is going to get us far but it's not going to be able to solve the um uh, the, the individual patients uh, because we will not be able to have a training data set that is big enough to match Mrs. Jane Doe with all of her um, uh, heterogeneities and all of her patients, of all the things that are specific to her. So given the, the heterogeneity across the cancer, you know, because it's not, again, it's not just cancer, it's not just breast cancer, it's not just triple negative breast cancer, given the heterogeneity across the disease, and then given the variations in the different uh, types of targeted therapies that are coming out, you have to have a really large training set that explores all of those options to be able to pick out what's best for Miss Jane Doe. But if you have a mathematical model that summarizes the key components of cancer, then you can populate that model with Miss Jane, Mrs. Jane Doe's um, uh, patient-specific information, and then you can try all of the very targeted therapies on the computer to make a prediction about which one is the best, and then pick that therapy for her. Um, that is. Again, that is, you know, perhaps pie in the sky dreaming, but that's the type of thing that we're trying to work towards. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Thomas Yankalov, a computational biomedical engineer at the University of Texas at Austin. We'll be right back. I'm Sonia Portillo here with Peter Hoffland, and this is the Oncozine Brief. This is the Oncozine Brief, and if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Thomas Yankalov, a computational biomedical engineer at the University of Texas at Austin.
So now, now making it a little bit more practical for, uh, say, maybe a patient that is uh, current may have currently cancer, or uh, may visit the clinic. Um, this is obviously future. This is not necessarily something that happens right now. You are developing those models, and, and, and we probably have to wait quite some time before we can actually see this in the clinic. But how do you envision this going to be actually working in the clinic? I mean, are you expecting that there is going to be um, a kind of a data manager or a modeler um, that is working in collaboration with nurses and and the oncologist or hematologist to to kind of see how the patients can benefit in this case? Or what do you, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's another great question of a very insightful question is how, how is this going to work, right? If everything, if all the planets align and this all works, how are you going to actually deliver the care to the to the patient, which is the whole reason you lie awake at night trying to work on these things in the first place. Um, right, so we actually have uh, clinical trials running in in Austin here, and then we also have uh, one that's going between Vanderbilt and the University of Chicago, um, where we're collecting the data types that we think are the ones that we need to populate our models. So these patients are enrolling on our studies, and we're collecting the data that we think is appropriate for, for calibrating our models so that we can make realistic or uh, accurate and precise predictions of how the patient's going to be um, uh, responding, but it's all retrospective. We're not using the models to, to, uh, to, to guide the intervention. The patients are going on the therapy that they would have gone on. We're making the extra measurements that we think we need to um, um, calibrate our models. And so, um, uh, so, that, so if that all plays out, then we have a nice pathway for how um, uh, we could uh, actually deliver care going on in the future. So the idea is that you, we have identified these measurements the patient has to be made. We're making them right now in the community setting where the patient would be um, uh, scanned right now um, as part of their standard of care. And then the idea was that you would put um, uh, the software that, that uh, has the models in it, you'd put that in a, you know, in a cloud-based setting so that at this hospital where the data is taken, it could be uploaded to the cloud. It would be populated into these models, which would then run forward you know, semi-automatically to make predictions um, um, about how a patient would respond to therapy X. And then that, that information could then be given back to the, um, uh, to the treating uh, oncologist. That is, what I just described is far down the road. But I can say that, you know, we're, we're running the trials now where we're trying to nail down the measurements that we need to make. And we're trying to um, uh, refine the models that we're using so that we can come up with the, you know, the, the simplest model that we can that does a nice job of predicting uh, who's going to respond and who's not going to respond, um, giving the measurements that we're making in these patients. And we're focusing um, uh, right now on, on the case of breast cancer. Yeah. And, and uh, the case of breast cancer, uh, you had some experience in, um, in, in the past, in your uh, previous part of your career, that you were working, um, I think it was at Vanderbilt, uh, where you actually had a major advancement in uh, the modeling of, the, of, of breast cancers. Yes, again, it was, a, it was a small patient population, somewhere between 40 and 50. I believe it was 44 patients. So um, uh, it was a very controlled uh, study that we did at, you know, at an academic research center. And we were able to predict after one cycle of therapy um, uh, who was going to respond and who was not going to respond um, uh, with an accuracy of about 87%. But again, it was a small number of patients. Um, uh, it was about 40 or 44, I believe. Um, and it was uh, it was enough to get us excited that this was that there really was something to this. So right now, we're, what we're doing, trying to do here in Austin, is we're trying to uh, replicate this in the community setting, which um, is very different than an academic research setting. You know, um, uh, this is the community setting is where most people get their care, and they're not, 
you know, there's not a fleet of PhDs running around all of these studies. This is um, just, um, you know, you, the, the, the scanning is done at, you know, the, the community um, imaging center and so forth. It's not associated with an academic research hospital. So we're trying to replicate the study there and do um, um, and, and about triple the number of patients that we're trying to study. And if the results um, pan out, then at that point, we'll be really excited for trying to do a, a multi-site study. Yeah. So, final question uh, we have, um, I think we have for you here, is if you if you look at uh, all the developments uh, that uh, you're working on, uh, oncologists and other scientists are working on. Um, the first question that comes to mind is something about accessibility and um, affordability to some extent. I mean, in the current treatment options, uh, it's often very unfortunate that the costs are pretty high. Um, do you see with the increased computer power and with the increase of the potential of treating patients more accurately or more uh, on an individual level that this is going to be a hurdle for people or are there other benefits um, in that respect that make it easier for them to, to get this kind of care? Right. So the idea is that we would be using measurements that they that could be acquired in the clinical standard of care setting. So they're so there wouldn't be an exorbitant um, increase in price there, perhaps no increase. In fact, those studies that we're doing now, the data types we're getting now, there is no increase in price on the data acquisition side. The data analysis side um, um, is um, there, there might be a price increase there because it requires computing power and operators to do things. But one of the ways that this could potentially uh, help trim costs is that you could select therapies um, for patients who would benefit um, and and so that you will not be giving extraordinarily expensive uh, drugs to people who are not going to benefit from them. You might choose a different um, um, therapeutic approach. So one of the uh, potentials for, for computational oncology is that uh, it, it could be a way to, uh, to more uh, optimally select therapies and um, uh, so that you're not picking extraordinarily expensive therapies for people who are not going to benefit. Um, that's a long-winded way of saying it, but that's the, that's the idea. Dr. Yankilov, thank you so much for talking with us. Today we spoke with Dr. Thomas Yankilov, a computational biomedical engineer who came to the University of Texas at Austin from Vanderbilt University about predictive modeling in oncology, and the future of individualist medicine. This edition of the Oncozine Brief was originally recorded on February 28, 2018. For us here at the Oncozine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach via distribution with iHeartRadio in addition to PRX Public Radio Exchange. You can also download our program via iTunes, Google, Stitcher, or Spreaker. The Oncozine Brief is now also heard on UK Health Radio and in Arizona on Independent Talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, check our online journal, Oncozine, at oncozine.com. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions, so please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. And we will post as many answers as we can on our website, oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The 
Oncazine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it. The Oncocene Brief is in part made possible by generous support from Kite Rocket. Kite Rocket, making brands more valuable. For more information about public relation beyond classic PR support, contact Martin Pirick at Kite Rocket in Phoenix at 602-443-0030 or visit their website at kiterocket.com and by Aquatherapy Clinics. Aquatherapy Clinics offering an alternative form of pain management and stress relief for everyone, from young athletes to active seniors. For more information about the future in rehabilitation and pain management, from sports injuries, neurological conditions, and musculoskeletal disorders, contact David Grywall at Aqua Therapy Clinics in Gilbert, Arizona at 480-773-7766 or visit aquatherapyclinics.com.